Greetings this morning. It's good to see all of you here. And I trust you have found it a blessing so far. I also was thinking of that song that David mentioned. I, I, um, I know we sang that song before. Not sure who picked it this morning. O oh, love divine, what hast thou done? But it was more moving to me this morning than normal. And David brought one side out of it um, about the healing stream and giving all our hearts to him. But there's another part of it that actually Brother Bill in the children's lesson was more uh, inclined to to talk about. And I'd like to um, like to bring it out. It was the uh, the third stanza of the second verse that I like to that really stuck out to me, and I like to expand on it a little bit. Ye all are bought with Jesus' blood. And I just got that picture again fresh in my mind, and it was partly because just recently I heard someone say that it was hard for them to believe that Jesus really meant what he said, I will forgive you your sins. If you come to, if you believe in me, I will forgive your sins. And it's just that simple. How can that, how can that work? How does that work? And here it says, Jesus, he already bought us. In other words, the price has already been paid. There's no more price to be paid. It already has been paid. And that reminds me of that song that says, There is a door that stands ajar. That's another picture. There's a door. There's a door. But it's not a locked door. It's not even a closed door. It's an open door. All any one of us or anyone in the whole world needs to do is to go walk through that door. Now that brings the bigger picture in what's on the other side of the door. It is the kingdom of God. Why am I on this side of the door? Uh, because, well, a number of things, but one of the things, I, I have my own life in control, and I have my own sins. And for me to go through that door, I will need to give up control of my life. And so it's a very simple thing, and yet a very profound thing. But it's that simple. The price has already been paid and there is no reason. And so the cruci- is crucified for me and you to bring us rebels back to God. That's the thing. We were rebels. We are rebels by nature. 
But Jesus was crucified to bring the rebels back to God. Believe, believe, the record is true. Ye all are bought with Jesus' blood. The price has been paid. That is the marvelous part. So, yeah, that song, I, I don't know, that could be a theme song or not, but it was a, it's a beautiful song this morning. <clears throat> well, I uh, am going to keep on going with the series that I had started with John Copeland's, but I think this is going to be the last. There, there's six challenges in that series, and I'm on the fourth today. I think I'm then going to put the series on hold after this morning and speak on some other topics. But um, this morning, I will keep continue on with this topic. But let's just pause for a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are so grateful this morning. You paid the price. You paid that price. It was a high price. It was a hard price. It was, but it was a complete price. And Lord, you paid it. You did it because you loved us. And Lord, we have the privilege of coming and entering into, into the results of your sufferings. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning as we as we continue on here, that you would bless, that you would bless us, you would instruct us. I pray you open up any one of our hearts in the way it needs to be opened up. Yes, Lord, in the way of wisdom and in the way of the fear of the Lord, that it may result in adoration and worship and, and truth. Thank you, Lord. Pray, uh, Lord, you'd uh, yes meet our needs here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, did I lose it again? <laughs> this same problem. This morning is an interesting subject and a relevant one. It involves, I could have way, many ways to describe it, but a wild, wet sea of navigation is the way I described it. It has winners and has losers. It has some people, a small minority, partially or mostly rejecting it. It has the masses of the world, multiple billions of people embracing it and utilizing it in multiple ways. It has, and it is, at this very hour, changing the world in major, major ways. Does anybody have any idea what I am talking about? <laughs> Could be a lot of things, I suppose, huh? Well, challenge number four in that essay is, the challenge is for us to engage with technological innovations Taking advantage of the potential without succumbing to the dangers of simple uses. Technological innovations. The title 
of the message is future shock is here. Future shock is here. I'm going to start broad and then I'm going to narrow down towards the end. And I almost feel like today it's almost like an essay. You're almost like in a college class. <laughs> Some of you will be okay with that. Others won't be very inspired. But I'll try to make it inspirational. Technology. This morning I had the question asked, the wisdom of what is wisdom? Well, I'm going to ask you, what is technology? The dictionary. The dictionary definition of technology is the use of science or knowledge in industry to invent useful things and to solve problems. Another definition is the practical application of knowledge, especially in a particular area such as medical technology. Man was created with the ability to create technology. You can turn to a few verses in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, way at the beginning, well, almost. Verse 20, And Ada bare Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such that have cattle. That's called a livelihood. And verse 21, and his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. And there we see the arts. Verse 22, and Zillah, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artifice, artificer of brass and iron. And the sister of, uh, you don't want to read that part. So the um, Tubal Cain, was such as instructor of brass and iron. It's a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. Manufacturing, technology. Bronze is made when you combine copper and tin and you, and you make an improved metal. It has properties that neither metals have. And then you can make improved implements or instruments. Early man, and, and, and these men were not godly men. This is, the, this is the culture that was going towards the flood that was eventually wiped out. But mankind, with or without God, was designed to create what we call technology. <clears throat> One way to describe it is in three circles. First circle is the creator, then you can have another circle. This is creation, that means everything physical that's made, including mankind. And then you have another circle, and this is creation's creation
broadly speaking, creations, creation, and can even include animals to a small degree when you have birds building nests and beavers building dams. Animals can do certain things, but really they're really minuscule when it compared to man's creative ability. Mankind has vastly more creative capability. And Stephen Brubaker mentions this list of the creative ability of mankind. And he has a number of things. Children and poems, cars and tree houses, novels and nations, and plows and businesses. All of them mankind creates. However, children and poems are in a different category than cars and plows. Okay? And so when we call, when we talk about technology, we're not talking about children and poems. We're talking about cars and plows. That's what man creates when it calls about technology. And, and technology, we mean the use of science and knowledge in industry to invent useful things and to solve a problem that we have, make things easier. Technology generally increases with time. People learn from each other. And there are small improvements generally made, and every once in a while there is a technological breakthrough that completely broadens a completely new area. Then there are periods in history where technology actually seemed to have decreased, at least temporarily. I'm thinking of the flood, the Genesis flood. I don't know what all was destroyed then, but I imagine a lot of technology was destroyed. We don't really know what that old world was. Then, of course, one other instance, I think in the Dark Ages in Europe, you had actually a decrease in the technology and sciences. But generally, technology grows. In fact, there's evidence, more evidence in the Bible, some that we had just read. There's another place, and you can turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 26, verses 14 and 15. And Uzziah, and Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the host at the army, shields and spears and helmets and hapergeons and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. Here, Uzziah was a great leader and he had worldwide fame. Now part of the reason that he had so much fame was because he utilized some new technology. These engines that were invented was a new thing, and it gave him a competitive advantage 
and that competitive advantage made him um, it, it spread his name around. It, that man over there, you know what they did? They built that thing, and and his, his fame went about. It's not actually unlike new technological te- technological advances today. Who invented the first mass-produced automobile? Is there one one name going through all of your minds? Henry Ford. That was a hundred years ago. How? Why do you remember that? Henry Ford, because of his technological advances, he became famous and he changed the world in a major way. Who invented the first telephone? Alexander Graham Bell in 1875. Who, this is one you won't know, right? Who flew the first controlled airplane flight? <laughs> was it Wilbur or was it Orville? <laughs> the, right? Yeah, maybe. Okay, okay. We won't get into that one. <laughs> the Wright brothers, we all know that. Except there's some debate in that, I understand. New technology makes you famous. Mankind has been created to create. And he's been creating technology from the beginning. From the beginning, he, he was designed to create. So I don't know what Adam used, it doesn't actually say, but Adam created technology. Then, in New York, starting in the 1500s, but growing in momentum in the 16 and 1700s, there was a major change that occurred. In brief, the world was discovered to operate on specific laws. Okay? Scientific laws. It was understood that the world operates on laws. And these laws could be discovered by careful, systematic experimentation. Then that new information could be used to develop new technology. And that new technology began, I say began, but it it, it began to increase the world faster. Let's say it that way. It did that. Now, it's changed new. Here's a quote that I found from an ancient Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, at 500 B.C., he made this profound statement. He said, change is the only constant. (laughs) Things are always changing. I mean, you are. You're, You're young. You grow older. You change. Your ideas change. The world changes. And, and change is the only constant. So, change is normal. But the rate of change began to increase in the 1700s. With the event of the Industrial Revolution, I won't describe the whole revolution, the Industrial Revolution, but 
the rate of change and its effect on the lives of people began to accelerate more and more rapidly. And you can go into the 1800s and then the 1900s. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that one person could, in their one lifetime, to, could hear about the first airplane flight to watching people land on the moon on their television sets in one generation. That's a pretty big advance. From mankind being earthbound to going to the moon in 60 years. That's tremendous. So change is not new. But it has accelerated thousands fold. And now the question is, is change wrong? Or is it bad? Or for the sake of our topic, is new technology a bad thing? We had this whole thing about wrong in Africa. Over there, they do things wrong. And Tim reminded, no, they don't do it wrong. They do it different. You went to get into the vehicle. Well, the driver's, <laughs> the driver's side is on the wrong side. No, it's not on the wrong side. It's on the other side. And so this whole thing about wrong and different, we, we really debated that thing over there. No, it's not wrong. It's different. Okay, there are a lot of things like that. So is technology wrong? Is it neutral? Is it good? Well, what do you think? <laughs> what would you, how would you answer that? Is new technology a good thing or a bad thing? Both. Okay. That was my answer. None? Some? All? Depends? <laughs> Our health technology is good. Yeah. Our military technology is good. Some of it used the same technology. Is new tech always good? Or are there negative, negative sides of new technologies? Be careful here. In 1895, the average income per capita in the West was about a dollar a day. In today's money, that means if you were a family of eight with an average income, your family would live on an income of $8 a day or about $240 a month. <clears throat> How many photo albums or kitchen kettles or potato chips would your family buy with that? amount of income they weren't destitute but there wasn't a lot of stuff technology among other things has enabled us to become very rich and have much easier lives we have more food we have more leisure time we have more stuff of all kinds we live longer mostly pain-free Many diseases have been eradicated. We travel more. We know more. We communicate more. Our houses are bigger. They're heated better. They're even cooled. We spend proportionally less on clothing and food. 
Shall we conclude that given the results, technology has been and is an unmitigated or a total, total success? Would any of us wish to go back? I've heard of, and this is actually probably was my, my wish, a teenage boys or, you know, when they're sort of woodsy minded and things like that. Oh, I wish we lived back in the pioneer days. And I, I used to, I used to think of that. Of course, we're not thinking the whole picture. That one particular boy was reminded that he wouldn't be alive if he'd be back in pioneer days because his mom had a medical issue before he was born that she'd have died from. And so that changed the picture a little bit. I think a fundamental reality of new technology is this. There are good uses and bad uses for probably any technology. That's not even debatable. But the next statement that I want to make must be understood. Each new or improved technology brings with it changes in the human experience or in a human experiment. Each technology, when it has its purpose, has also other consequences that are not its purpose, but it'll change the experience. The new tech has a purpose that it's designed to do But I think we can say always, always has other repercussions that come with it. Some of it's foreseen, some of it's not. Some of it positive, some of it not. Here's a few common examples. The uh, mass production of cloth and goods back in uh, in the Industrial Revolution made those cloth and goods much more available and much cheaper. That was the improvement. It also ended many, many family trades and expertise that they had been in in for generations. It was their livelihood. It was their specialty. It was what they did. And the Industrial Revolution, poof, it was destroyed as a result of cheaper goods. The automobile is a good example of that. It gave huge independence and mobility to society. It also largely eliminated local community. It caused millions of early deaths by car accidents. It polluted our environment. It disrupted the animal ecosystem by many high-speed Roads through the uh, forest and the other other um, uh, what do you call habitat human uh, animal habitat, and you could actually develop a very long list of how the automobile has say some negative effects. Air conditioned homes make our lives more comfortable. I think most of us have air conditioning of some kind. But now if you walk in the city in the summer, people no longer sit outside. Children no longer go outside as much. And so air conditioning contributes to the obesity epidemic in this country as a consequence. There were technologies 
in the times of Jesus and the apostles. I think Paul used every mode of transportation that was available to him. Ship, walking, and, and other forms too. There was this huge temple in Jerusalem. I suppose it was a, for its day, it was probably a technological advanced building for its day. And the Jews and Jesus and the apostles, they, um, they participated in it. They frequented it. Then there were huge temples to the Greek gods in their day. Uh, the Christians did not use that because it was not about technology, it was about the use of it. So the Christians lived in the midst of that culture. They are in the culture, but they're not of that culture. They utilized many of the available techni- technological advancements but not always using it in the same way that the culture did. They took their cues, not from self, not from the surrounding culture, but from God, from the words of Jesus and from the apostles. But they still were intelligent creatures. They were still part of creation, and I'm sure Christians developed new creations. For good purposes. I'm sure they have. Now I'm going to shift a little bit. Technology. We're talking about technology. But when we talk about technology today, what are we often talking about? What do you think John Copeland's meant when he talked about technological innovations? A particular technology I'm thinking of. Anybody have any idea? Internet. Internet. Is there a um, more of a broader? Let me ask, where are the fastest changes occurring in technology today? Information and communication technology is basically the way I headed it. Digital. So in 1970... Alvin Toffler wrote his international bestseller book, Future Shock, where he described the stress and disorientation that come from rapid societal changes. In 1970, society was changing rapidly. Technology continued to change our lives far beyond what they envisioned in the 1970s. What brought us the telephone eventually brought us the cordless phone, then the cell phone, and then the smartphone in rapid succession. We can communicate with people around the globe. We have instant access to information that years ago took days or months or even years to access, and we have it at our fingertips. Toffler was the first one to describe information overload in 1970. And he called it future shock. 
the reality of information at our fingertips, of course, like has increased just just tremendously. People can. This is uh, John John Copeland's talking. People can browse the web, skipping from news to weather to maps to music to blogs to pricing on products and to games, all in a matter of minutes. And this is normal life for most of our society. I say for most of us. Do I like it? I like to learn. I like to study. I like to read. In our pre-internet days, in our family, we went to the library. Home Messenger Library was a, a monthly visit. Maybe more than that. You could only get 14 books per family. It was hard to choose only 14 books. So we had to be selective. Uh, it was the first library was down in, in Lincoln at the old original Galen's building. And there they also had a resource library, which is a, a, a another room where you could actually read books, but you couldn't check them out. But it was various, a lot of religious books that you could uh, study and so on. So for lots of the ongoing study that I experienced in those days, it was by checking out those two or three books that were allotted to me from my family and then reading resource books in the library. Also during those years, there was a very active tape ministry going at charity, the original charity congregation. And I would stop by there occasionally, and I would stock up on, on tapes, get messages and out of their unlocked church house building. Then we got our first computer. It was a dial-up. Eventually, we got high-speed Internet, and now we have the smartphone. Do I like this new communications technology? Would I want to get rid of it? Could I live without it? Would I or those around me be better off without it? Or are we better off with it? There's a question we can ask. What do I use my computer for mostly? Well, let me give you a hint. I don't go to the library anymore. <laughs> That's one. Uh, our children still do occasionally, but not as often. That's one of the human experience consequences of change of behavior that happens when you have a new technology. <clears throat> but I don't go to the library anymore. I learn. I study. I read on my computer. And I'm not limited to a single library and I don't have an allotment of two or three books a month. I can study anything from any angle that you could imagine. The world is in my office. I don't have to stop at the church in Leola and stock up on messages anymore. I can now listen, or I can watch, or I can download from a selection of millions, multiplied millions of messages 
the one, I just checked this morning, the one site, um, what do you call it, um, what a sermon audio I believe it is, has 1.7 million messages on that one site. So I can have a selection from millions of messages on any possible topic that creators, the creation's creation has been able to create. And that surely has to be an improvement, does it not? I mean, in my office, I can find out why the bread doesn't rise in the kitchen. I can find out how to change the headlights in the 1957 Plymouth, which you want to. Or I can research on the different theories of the atonement. It's all there, plus a lot more. And then you add the smartphone. And I think we could almost say the smartphone for dumb people, because you no longer have to be smart if you got the phone. Now, this is, this is John Copeland's talking again under his article. For years, conservative Anabaptists simply avoided most of the new technology. Together, agreeing not to listen to the radio or watch television, for example. But as computers have been harnessed to, e- to enable efficiency across all sectors of society, it has become increasingly difficult simply to abstain from technology. Of course, he's talking about communication technology. We use the Internet now not only to access information, but also to make purchases, find parts, communicate with friends and families, enable Bible translation, and spread the gospel in hard-to-reach areas of the world. The original statement that John Copeland's was is challenge number four. To engage with technological innovations, taking advantage of the potential without succumbing to the dangers of simple uses. That is actually an inadequate statement, I think. So I'm going to change that challenge. If I would, a more accurate or pertinent statement would be something like this. Challenge number four, to benefit from modern digital technology by selectively using it in a way that does not exploit the next generation by changing the way they think, develop, and think, and see, and act in the world. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why I worded it that way, and it could be worded different ways, and maybe you have some ideas too. Just recently, Americans crossed a particularly, some say, alarming technological threshold. Now, I didn't verify this is true. (laughs) Not everything that you get on the Internet is true. But this is the threshold that supposedly America has crossed. The average American now spends more time in the virtual world while awake than in the physical world. That means the virtual world is mean they're more on the digital world than they are in the real world without digital. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of alarmists showing up in the past several years. You may have heard of some of them, like a former Facebook executive that will not allow 
their children or their nephews to use social media for uh, some the reason they feel is is valid. But here here's what I mean by using digital technology technology selectively that it won't change the next generation. There was three questions. There were there was a question asked of three consecutive generations. And here's the question. Grandpa and father and then child. What did you do for fun when you were a child? That's the question. And you got grandpa. Well, grandma said she went picking for blueberries. That was fun. Grandpa said we planted watermelon and we went fishing. In fact, the one told a story that he was fishing and he got this string of fish. And he looked up and there was a bear watching him. And he was scared, so he began to throw fish at the bear, hoping the bear would get full before this fish got empty. <laughs> what did you do for fun as a child? Father, mother. Oh, we rounded up the neighborhood children and we played hide and seek or we went and played baseball. Or we played houses, playhouses. We built playhouses and had so much fun. Children, what do you do for fun? Boy, video games. I love video games. Or watching videos. When I feel upset, when I feel upset, I play a video game and then I feel normal again. Girls, and these are, these were 9, 10, 11 year old girls. Oh, texting and emailing. How long? Three hours. Four hours a day. Five hours, no problem. One and said, I forget that I have a sister or a dog. I get so caught up in the game, video game. Then the question was asked of the adults. If this trend continues, what will your great-grandchildren be doing? It's a very sobering question. Here is the reality. Here's the reality. We shape our tools. But in turn, they shape us by altering our physical and social environment. Now that's a maxim you can take to the bank. We shape our tools. But in turn, they shape us. In physical and social ways. And you could say spiritual ways as well. There are now some new identifying labels we can use. A digital immigrant. And a digital native. Any idea what that might mean? I am a digital immigrant. I remember life before digital. I entered into a digital life. I was an immigrant. I came into it. The next generation is a digital native. They don't remember anything but digital life. That's a digital native. It is normal life for them. Our tools will change us. 
Now, there's enough evidence amassed that it can conclusively be said of children growing up on media, the digital natives, their brains are altered structurally as a result of their interaction with technology. In other words, the neuroplasticity, the brain is what they call neuroplasticity. When it's developed, it, it can develop many different ways. And it's well understood that children exposed to higher levels of screen activity that their brains develop differently than those not so exposed. We have gone from zero to two billion smartphones in 10 years. And the same with social media. Zero to two billion in 10 years. It's actually two and a half billion about by now. Well, the smartphone, I think, is. In history, that's just a blink of an eye. There is no way we can actually predict real accurately what the results of that is, positive or negative. But believe me, it will have a change. There's no way of telling the consequences of some that has come so fast. So when we talk about future shock, when we talk about societal change and how it's, it's increasing, we're right at the tail end and it's, it's still increasing. Now, are Christians immune to that kind of change? After all, Christians are much more careful about the content of the media that they participate in. And believe me, you do need to be careful. But as Harry Argel, the um, the guru on this tech technology um, curve, he emphatically emphasized it is not only, and it's maybe not even primarily, the content that is the concern. It is the medium, the medium itself. The medium will change your life. And even the way our children think. Now, I do have a Bible verse. I'll read it. Proverbs 22, 3. Say, the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The paraphrase renders it this way. A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. For the rest of the message, I want to foresee some evil and danger and develop some precaution and then finish with some ways to utilize digital technology. We live in 2018. That's not an accident. We are here because God put us here. We are here because it's God's will that we be here. And we are in the midst of a digital revolution. It has many promises and it has many benefits. But not all that glitters is gold. I'm going to read a few things here. Here is... Seen Parker, 
He's the founding president of Facebook, recently came out with some harsh words concerning the social media platform. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. Parker is not alone in this sentiment. Several other Silicon Valley technological technology leaders have recently criticized the adverse impact that Facebook has on society. Chaymath Philahaphila, I can't pronounce his last name, another former Facebook executive has suggested that social media has destroyed how society works. Is destroying, I'm sorry, is destroying how society works. And Apple CEO Tim Cook has publicly stated he does not want his young nephew to use social networks. Now, let's look a little closer at this thing called social media. Now, I want to, I want to be a disclaimer here because granted, I'm going to look at the negative side of it, okay? There is another side of, there is another side of technology and social media. But it does have a negative side, so I want to look at it this morning. Let's start with the human condition. What is the matter with humankind? Well, we know that. We heard that this morning. He is a sinner. His heart is that way. It's not that we just do wrong things. Our hearts are bent. Let's say they're bent inward. And um, I could almost write it down, but I don't think I will. You could maybe. Rather than living a life that is naturally aligned towards God and others, human sinfulness directs itself inward. And it directs itself toward self-justification Self-gratification and self-aggrandize, aggrand- I tried to say this, aggrandizement, which means just make you feel good about yourself. Self-justification, self-gratification, and self-aggrandizement. I have a co-worker who is never wrong. We talk quite a bit, and I can. Uh, there, he had, there are some there are some areas in his life that I could see if he would change these things, it would go better for him. Of course, we can see it better in other people, can't we? It's a part of my condition. Just one example. He's talking such and such a way about the boss, the dispatcher, and so I remind him why well, I said. You want to talk about your dispatcher the way you want your children to talk about you. I just thought I'd put a hint there, you know, because it's not right. It's the way he sees these little pe- uh, people and his dispatcher sees the bigger picture. And then with the little people, well, why does he do it this way? That doesn't make any sense. Well, no, because it's a bigger picture. But then all of a sudden... Instead of admitting, you know that, right? He's, oh no, I, oh, the, oh, the, the, yeah, he actually, uh, it's, yeah, I, uh, he completely changes his tune then, but he never ever acknowledges anything wrong. It's the self-justification that's inbred. 
So he's never wrong. And then I think, do some people think I'm that way? Some people who relate with me? (laughs) Those thoughts go through my mind at times. Okay, the human condition. Our heart is directed inward towards self-justification, self-gratification, and self-aggrandizement. This reality may offer an important explanation as why this social media platform is so problematic for both society and for the individual well-being. Talk about Facebook. Facebook utilizes a technique called user experience design or user-centered design. As the name suggests, user-centered design advocates designing with the end user in mind. That is to say that technology is designed to acknowledge and accommodate the needs and the wants of the user. As designers seek to maximize user experience by creating products that are built around the user's desires. And this user research is responsible for nearly all the design decisions at Facebook. And I say, well, so far, so good. Find out what your potential customers want and give it to them, right? That's, that's what businesses do. Norman, now Donald Norman, a formative figure in user-centered design, It's a formative figure. In other words, he's the one who helped develop that whole user-centered design. Has recognized how designers actually aim to facilitate human sinfulness in what they design. In the foreword by a book by Chris Nadler, and this is the title of the book, Evil by Design, Interaction Designed to Lead Us into Temptation, Norman asked the question, but why should design be based on evil? Simple. Starting with evil means starting with real human behavior. Norman's point is rather simple. Good design understands users, and therefore it must understand the depravity of those users. You following the line? That means, according to user-centered design, human sinfulness ought to be accounted for and perhaps even exploited when creating products for the digital age. Theology recognizes, theology, the Bible, we as we recognize that human hearts are curved inward. We're inclined to boast, and we're always looking for opportunity to prove our own self-righteousness. User-centered design recognizes that social media platforms should be designed to meet the wants and the needs of real human users. So you put those two concepts together. It reveals why Facebook can be so dangerous. Facebook's technology is designed to accommodate and encourage and it exploits human depravity. The like button on Facebook is not there by chance. The like button was created to satisfy our deep longing to be liked by others, 
lauded for our accomplishments and acknowledged for our righteousness. And this digital Leviathan has more than 2 billion active users. And it reaches out and touches everything, industrialized and developing nations, offices and bedrooms and children and elderly, democracy and private. And we only, God only knows what Facebook will do in the future. They have just started, I think the last week, a dating platform, I believe. We don't know what it's going to do in the future. Yet, we know enough already to approach this technology with the awareness that it has been designed according to our sin. So we need to approach it with the awareness it was designed to exploit our sinfulness. That was the main point of all of this here. And like I said, that's the negative side of that platform. God says in the Bible, that, and we heard it last week, unto the pure, all things are pure. Okay? So if you have a pure heart, then everything you use is pure. Well, there's also a counterverse that says evil communications corrupt good manners. So you do have both of those truths in tension in the scripture. Knowing about, knowing what we know about Facebook and how it was designed and other, other media platforms, should we be like the prudent man who foresees danger and takes precautions? That's the question this morning. Consider the wisdom of the Amish. <laughs> wisdom. We talked about wisdom this morning. Do, do, do Amish have wisdom? What do you think? Well, there are different kinds of wisdom. Let's say it that way. This is a non-Anabaptist. It's a religious person, but non-Anabaptist making this statement. When an elder was asked why they don't have TVs like 97% of America, here was the answer from the Amish we can almost always tell if a change will bring good or bad tidings. Certainly, I mean, certain things we definitely do not want, like the radio, I mean, like the television and the radio. They will destroy our visiting practices. We would stay at home with the television rather than meet with other people. How can we care for the neighbor if we do not visit them or know what is going on in their lives? Wisdom from the Amish. And here the, the quote goes on. The reason the Amish don't use the TV isn't because they are anti-technology, although that might be part of it. They don't endorse having TV in communities because they prioritize visiting each other over Netflix. They understand that TV will anchor them inside and slowly create habits in their communities that would inhibit people from visiting one another. 
You create a tool, and a tool will shape you. You shape the tool, the tool will shape you. That's exactly what is going on here. And the author says, and guess what? They were right. And so here is the upshot that technology is not neutral. We make our tools, and our tools in turn shape the way we think and live, and these changes are happening faster than has ever occurred before. There is the usual vanilla-coated mottos of social media. It's bringing people closer together. It's building community. But It's designed from day one to be addictive. And I haven't even mentioned porn or movies or video games or other things that we would consider to be directly harmful for us and our children. But I think that's mostly understood. I know a good case can be made for the benefits of media. And I, for one, am thankful for the productivity and the ease of communication with modern tech. And I endorse and I applaud carefully thought out and selected participation in these technology areas. I applaud that. What is happening to many of the digital natives in this nation that we live in, we must not allow to happen to our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren. They must grow up in a real world with real people around them, with a real sense of belonging, with a real sense of individual value, They need to develop in their childhood by climbing trees and building playhouses and participating in active games with other children. Technology, especially in children, needs to be used sparingly and purposefully. Here is the observation, one more observation of someone else. The sheer bombardment of content online makes children believe that they are entitled to a lack of boredom. Reading, playing outdoors, and cultivating one's own imaginations are forms of hard work. Children who have been addicted to technology and who have grown up with the Internet simply feel that that is too much effort. This reluctance to read and be active and reduce imaginative capability impairs learning and mental development in children to a significant degree. This must be a matter of concern for parents. And so the interesting about the electronic connections, all the electronic connections that we have it actually takes a toll on relationships. <laughs> it's amazingly. We think you, you can connect better. But it's, it's clearly out. 
that that connectivity takes a takes a toll on personal closer relationships. Then go to a restaurant and you can see how many people, even if they're sitting together, how many are talking to each other or how many are on their phones. So here is some of the um, some of the uh, activities that John Copeland's suggested that we use, and I I think I will I, I don't think I could improve on them. So I will just read them. We must not let email and texting keep us from the richness of face-to-face communication. I I think this is probably a little dated. I don't see WhatsApp in there even, but you can include that. Don't let email, texting, and WhatsApp keep us from the richness of face-to-face communication. We must spend spend time together as families in all dimensions of life, working, eating, laughing, relaxing, worshiping, playing, and serving. And we must resist the temptation to use tech media to entertain our children while we are busy elsewhere. Resist that temptation. We must make opportunities to visit one another as families, and we must learn to incorporate those who have no families into our family interactions. We must intentionally slow down and take time to think, talk, see, hear, and taste. One of the points we had agreed on as a church is to keep our phones mostly out of sight in both the service and also social settings. Of course, the reason is that you have, you're here, not somewhere else. That includes bringing your Bible to church, your, your paper and ink Bible. Bring that to church. Don't rely on your phone for your Bible. A couple more thoughts. We don't need to have the latest technology. It's okay to be a little old-fashioned. I mean, for 6,000 years, now I didn't look at ushers or whatever, that that man that did the chronology of the Bible, I'm not quite sure. He, He actually came down to a date and a month and a day of when the earth began. He actually did that. And I didn't check how long it's been now up to the present. But let's say it in general terms that people have lived without the smartphone for 6,000 years. That maybe it doesn't matter if we don't have the latest one. (laughs) The newest or the latest model with the up-to-minute bells and whistles. While others are swooning over each other relationally on their medias, you could be developing a deep relationship with the Lord and developing some real godly character. So, future shock, it's here. And I could say that future shock is probably still coming, more still coming. But I'd like to close with some scripture verses to encourage us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As I was looking this morning, I said, how can we close this in an encouraging way? 
And I'll actually just break in here and we'll start at verse 19. We could start earlier, but we'll start at verse 19. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. That applies here. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Every kind of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Future shock is here. Future shock is coming. But the Lord Jesus Christ is also coming. That's encouragement when I leave with us. He's also coming. And he's coming for us. And he's coming for our children. And he's coming for our grandchildren. And it's pray that our whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. Blameless. Now see that word? Preserved. Just think a little bit. To some degree, the Christian life is a life of preservation. Not just advance. It is a life of advance. Don't forget the preservation while we advance. May God bless you.